Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. This is the first of my best of the year episodes. I usually do this on the blog. I have for over 10 years done the best reads and best movies of the year. But this is the first time that the best of lists are going to premiere here on the podcast for about a week or so, and then they'll go up. Joining me today, for those of you who don't know, Mr. Langhorn J. Tweed, uh, who is my co-host on the Dickheads podcast. So for those of you who listen to both Dickheads and this podcast, you know Larry well. He is uh, one of my best friends in the world, so I thought he'd be a good person to go over uh, the best books of the year. So Larry, anything you want to say about uh, the reading you did this year? Yeah, well... I would say this this year more than any other year, I read less novels because I was so busy reading about COVID-19 and <laughs> what Trump was doing and trying to make sense of what people are saying on social media and trying to watch the news without actually watching the news so I didn't have to hear the administration speak. So it was a, it was a weird year, but I, I read some pretty good books. And you definitely um, had to read a bunch of Philip K. Dick for our for our other podcast. So, yep. uh, but we will talk about PKD a little bit. So I've provided you a list with everything that I read all year, all 86 books that I read, which is down slightly from my tick of 100 books a year the last two years. And I can explain that. There, there are a couple things going on. One is I read less graphic novels this year, for one thing. For two, I did not travel out of state. And when I travel, I read like a book in a sitting on the plane, (laughs) like a lot of times. So there was that. And also I moved closer to work. So I'm no longer commuting and reading for an hour each way on the bus. But... I am doing more of intentionally sitting down. I usually put on music and read at home for an hour or two a day. So um, I am doing that, which means I've watched less movies and TV this year and done more reading at home. So (laughs) I think you're the only person in in the country who's done (laughs) less TV watching. Uh, No, I did. I still did plenty of that, but... uh, (laughs) Keep in mind, we've had new uh, seasons, two new seasons of The Expanse, lots of new Star Trek, and uh, a lot of new stuff. Yeah, yeah, a lot of new stuff. So I did watch. It's not that I didn't watch stuff, but I did a lot of intentional reading. And uh, for those of you who follow the podcast, you'll know quite a few of these books because interviewed the authors. Um, a few or one of the books I interviewed the author, but it doesn't. The podcast doesn't come out for a little while, but we'll get into that. So Larry, do you want to start? With... You, you review, don't you review almost every single book you read? I review every book that I read. Yes. So you review every book. Yes. 
So if you look at the blog, um, every book that I read has a review, except I think I didn't review, I read seven graphic novels of Saga, the Brian K. Vaughn series. And I didn't, after I reviewed the first like two, I was like, I'm just gonna read these because I don't have a lot to say about graphic novels. <laughs> I do oh, like yeah? them. I do, I do like Saga. I just don't know how to write reviews about graphic novel sure. <clears throat> just didn't do that um anyways so I've, I've broken this into a few extra categories this year before we get into the top 10 and uh larry you want to start us off with that yeah the first category is best lockdown reads yeah so what that what i wanted to do is because this is an interesting year because we had a uh, a month, basically, at least in California, where we were pretty much locked down and people were fighting over toilet paper. But it was really interesting time to be reading anything because the world was very weird at the time. I accidentally read two books that were very kind of tied into what was going on. And the first was Naked Son by Isaac Asimov. This is a locked room murder mystery. It's from his um, cop detective novels. The Caves of Steel, Naked Sun, Robots of Dawn, um, and then there's a fourth one, and I'm brain farting the title, which technically exists in the same universe as the Foundation books, but many hundreds of years before them. But yeah. anyways, Naked Sun is a novel about social distancing, because it takes place, it is, it takes place on a world where people don't ever want to have contact with each other. Great place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so when somebody uh, winds up dead on a planet where they're not really interacting with each other, that's kind of the, um, the MacGuffin or the catalyst event of the murder mystery. And Naked Sun was just a really interesting book to read while being in lockdown. And I did not plan it that way. I had just read the first book, Caves of Steel, the year before, had Naked Sun on the shelf. Grabbed it and read it. And then after I started, I realized, wow, this is very tight in. And then the other one that I read was uh, China Mountain Zhang, which is a uh, 90s kind of sci-fi masterpiece by Maureen Mc F. McHugh. And this was one of my dick-like suggestions on the Dickheads podcast. And this book was interesting because it's it's was written in the 90s, but it's about the idea of the Chinese century, which is like a big political issue right now is China becoming the dominant superpower in the world is basically the theme of the book. The economic collapse that was happening in the book was eerily similar to what the free fall that uh, our economy was going through at the beginning of, of the lockdown when nobody knew what was gonna happen and if things were gonna reopen. So that was a really interesting read. <laughs> but when you when you say when you say best lockdown reads, you're talking about best books about a lockdown. Well, just books that court that, um, that that related to our our situation. Yes, books that related ah, to our situation. Like yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. So that that's it for that section. But um, all right. So next next category. Top five retro reads, which now this one is, uh, do you have a time frame to define retro or 
Is there anything prior to 1980, 1970, 60? <laughs> no. In fact, I included a book from last year uh, in this list because okay. my main list is all books released in 2020. And so I want to, I'm going to start with a book from 2019, and that is The Light Brigade by Cameron Hurley. And this is a really great time bending. It's a military science fiction novel, kind of similar to Starship Troopers, but it has, it has um, solar system wide transportation, it has be, people being turned into light. And it has a, what is reality? And it's an incredible uh, science fiction book, but I just didn't get it in, in time to read it for last year where it could have been on the list for books of 2019. And if it had been, it would have been very high on my list. Uh, the Light Brigade by Cameron Hurley is very good. But yeah, that, 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 was, that was one. And then the next one is from 2012, and that's Osama by Lavi Tadar, which was a dick-like suggestion on Dickhead's podcast from D. Harlan Wilson. Professor Wilson suggested it, and it was the winner of the World Fantasy Award in, in 2012. I, was re I read a lot of books about the war on terrorism and speculative fiction this year for a nonfiction article that I'm working on about science fiction and the war on terror. And so this one was one that I knew I had to read, but what really fascinated me is that it, it won the World Fantasy Award in 2012. And this was like five, six years after Norman Spinrad could not get Osama the gun published to save his life. And I just- yeah, I wanted to ask, are there any similarities between the two? No, not really. Um, Osama the Gun, which I read this year too, is a book about a futuristic or near future uh, Islamic caliphate where the, the Muslim world is mostly taken over by, by Al-Qaeda. This figure, Osama the Gun, is this kind of like sub-commander Marcos type figure, like the Zapatistas, who is basically everyone... He's like their rallying call is this guy, Osama the Gun. And the idea that Norman Spinrad was trying to do with Osama the Gun is to explore the idea of what a Muslim caliphate would look like and to give you kind of sympathy for the devil. Like the kind of idea of, he was trying to answer the question that people had right after 9-11 of why do they hate us? And right. I think Spinrad was trying to answer that. What Lavi Tidar was doing with Osama is very different. Um, Osama is very similar to the man in the high castle. And in man in the high castle, or I mean in Osama, Osama bin Laden is a character in pulp action novels that mirror our world, but, but it takes place in a world without terrorism, right? Okay. So Lavi Tidar in his book, Osama, is more in conversation with Man in the High Castle directly, <laughs> right? Uh, he doesn't yeah. hide the fact that he's using the same literary trick, basically. But then there's um, the wall between reality and everything falls down. And I do think that Lavi Tidar's Osama is a fantastic book, a really high watermark in the new but uh, subgenre of speculative war on terror commentary, 
but uh, are you you're calling that a new thing? I think that was that's been around a while. It's been around. I mean, you're just talking about modern terrorism, and it's instead of like classic terrorism. True. We've read in other things. Yeah. Yes, and I'm talking about specifically reacting to the U.S. idea of the war on terrorism, and and what's interesting about that subgenre is that when you factor in that Norman Spinrad in the days right when he wrote Osama the Gun could not publish anything. And now we've had several mainstream publishers do novels like Omar El Akkad's uh, The American War, which I also read this year and interviewed here on the podcast. And that was published by Kanaf. Uh, now, a lot of the difference in that is, is that Norman Spinrad's just a, um, an, a, a, a grandmaster of science fiction, but he is that Omar El-Akkad, I think, got into the position because he covered the war on terrorism in Iraq, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and in Guantanamo Bay on the ground. And I think that that gave him kind of a leverage to publish that book that 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 uh, Norman didn't have. So Right. Well, Spinrad's known as a classic provocateur. So, yeah. you know, anybody looking to publish that book would be a little a little reticent, I think. When it, when it comes to the, this uh, great author, but you know now a crotchety old guy that, that <laughs> might one, just be looking to make people angry. That once wrote a spoof of Lord of the Rings as Hitler. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah, God bless him. Uh, also well, on your list of books you read this year, so. Yes, uh, The Iron Dream, uh, which, you had read that one before, correct? Or is no, actually, I had, I had not actually read The Iron Dream from from okay. front to back, and uh, but that was for an episode of the Dickhead. So if people are interested, that is what Spinrad was doing. He was spoofing Lord of the Rings uh, via writing a pro-Nazi propaganda pulp novel as if he was Hitler, which is. Shots fired, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. time. and uh, and clearly one of the most provocative, provocateur moves in the history of science fiction, probably ever. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so you know, it's funny because Osama the gun could be looked upon as being kind of a provocateur move too, but I don't even think it comes close to what he did with with the Iron Dream. But Iron they're, they're comparable, but the the level of middle finger that's involved in um the iron dream is is yeah right <laughs> you're taking one of the darkest figures in all of history and yeah somehow i don't know he, he doesn't come off as a hero in that at all but it's something else it's a weird the next of my retro reads is a non-fiction book and it's in search of wonder essays on modern science fiction by damon knight for those who don't know who Damon Knight is, he's most famous for having written the short story that the uh, It's a Cookbook came from on The Twilight Zone. He's better known in science fiction circles as one of the founders of the Clarion Writers Workshop and is a grandmaster of science fiction. So unfortunately, that Twilight Zone episode is what he's remembered for, but he was much more than that. He, was, he also wrote a lot of criticism and reviews and critical stuff of science fiction before 1960 
And so this book, In Search of Wonder, is a collection of all of his essays leading up to the 60s. So mostly from the late 30s through 1960, these are essays on the genre from that era. And uh, this wow. book, yeah, this book is incredible. Some of the essays in there are more famous than the books that, that he's writing about, including he has an essay on the world of Null A, which we talk about a lot on Dickheads because the world of Null A, which I read this year as well, by A.E. Von Boat was uh, Philip K. Dick's biggest inspiration or his favorite science fiction novel when he was growing up. Uh, he completely jacked it and improved it for the Solar Lottery, his first novel. Um, <laughs> there's an essay in In Search of Wonder where Damon Knight just trashes the world of Null A. Like, it's seven pages of take of taking a literal dump on the world of LA. <laughs> and this essay is actually more famous than LA in a lot of ways. It is such a takedown of a classic because World of LA is considered one of the most popular and famous science fiction novels of the 1940s. Mm -hmm. And so for Damon Knight to trash it so hardcore was a big deal. I read this but he's but he's well respected right for for being a critic yes it's, yeah it's not it wasn't like he just took pot shots i mean he was he was always coming from a place of of knowledge and respect even when he disrespected things right and if you were if you were following me on twitter while i was reading this book you could have in real time seen <laughs> how many uh books i was adding to my want to read list on goodreads because um, entire, just, I, I would literally, as I was reading In Search of Wonder, I added probably 20 to 30 books a night while I was reading it to my want wow. to read list. Class, uh, this is early 20th century science fiction, a lot of it, dystopias, things I'd never heard of. There's a whole, eventually I want to go down a rabbit hole that I I got maybe 10 recommendations from that book on pre-space program uh, moonshot novels. And I, I, I want to do, I want to go down a rabbit hole with just <laughs> pre-space program moonshot novels at some point. To which, uh, by the way, one of the most- Do you want to get into the science of what they were doing? Well, the- No, I just want to see how they imagined the moonshots before we had all that. In fact, but one right. of the most interesting ones was written by one uh, Don Wolheim. And um, and so and I've never read Don Wolheim's actual science fiction, so I've read a butt ton of books that he edited. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, it'll well, be be interesting to read that. And then, uh, but yeah, In Search of Wonder is incredible. And I think anybody who's interested in the history of the genre, I don't agree with everything Damon Knight said because a lot of times when he was writing critically about novels that I had read before i didn't always agree with his take and i do think he was a little hard on nolle not that nolle didn't <laughs> deserve some of what he was saying but right. I, I think he was a little hard on uh old ae von vogt and also i think a little bit dismissive of ae von vogt's uh legacy as inspiring writers in the future i think he like will. like pkd <laughs> i mean that's right. an important thing at least for us it's a, an important thing 
Well, and then next is Anthony Boucher, who is like has a very similar kind of a, a connotation when it comes to you know people that created groups, uh, writers groups, and doing things, critiquing things, publishing things as Damon Knight. Yeah. So one of my absolute favorite retro reads of the year is Rocket to the Morgue by Anthony Boucher. Anybody who's listening, shout out to Anthony Boucher. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Tony. We that is a long running joke on on the Dickheads podcast because Tony Boucher is basically the editor who discovered Philip K. Dick and mentored him uh, early in his career. Uh, lived in Berkeley, was a customer at the record shop that Philip K. Dick worked in before he started writing. But love those connections. Yes, and one of the connections that Tony Boucher had was that in the late or in the early 40s, he lived for a brief time in Los Angeles and he was part of a writer's group that included L. Ron Hubbard and Robert Heinlein. And it was a group of science fiction writers who met and critiqued each other and got together. So this novel, Rocket to the Morgue, is a locked room murder mystery set in this writer's group with slightly fictionalized versions of L. Ron Hubbard, Robert Heinlein, C.L. Moore, um, Henry Henry Kuttner. And so this book is not the best murder mystery, but as a history of science fiction, it's incredible. I don't have a mystery section because I don't read a lot of mysteries. So I just went ahead and shelved this in my science fiction, nonfiction shelf (laughs) because it says so much about the genre. It's an incredible piece of work, um, even though it's not, but here's the thing about Tony Boucher is there's a mystery book festival, BoucherCon, that was, he is a titan in the field of mystery fiction, but he also is the founder of the still running magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And so he was a titan in two genres. And outside of the super nerds like us, he's not really as well known, uh, which is too bad. And so I definitely recommend that people read Rock to the Morgue. It comes with the, the newest paperback edition has an amazing introduction by Dr. Paul F. Paul Wilson, who's one of my favorite writers. And we did a whole tribute episode coverage of this book on Dickheads. It's the special shout out to Tony episode. And so people should look that up after they read this book. But they, this is one that I highly recommend just as a piece of history. If you're interested in the history of science fiction, you've got to read Rocket to the Morgue. And it's the second in a series and I didn't read the ones around it and it's fine. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to read more Tony Boucher. He has a short story co- collection called The Complete Werewolf, I believe, that is supposed to be incredible. And that's... Um, on my list of things to read uh, for next year's retro reads. And so I have one more, the best retro read that I read all year. A little a little tiny book by a little nobody. <laughs> yeah. H.G. Uh, Wells, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which was, uh, I somehow had never read. And I was forced to read by longtime, often guest of the Dickheads podcast, uh, Mark Conlon. Uh, basically told me, he basically called bullshit on me that I hadn't read The Island of Dr. Moreau since I'm an animal rights activist and a science right. reader. So 
when uh, the new Mysterious Galaxies opened up close to me here in Point Loma and they had their grand opening event pre-COVID, I went to the event and I was like, okay, I got to pick up a book. And I saw the science fiction masterworks copy of Island of Dr. Moreau on the shelf. So I was like, you know what? I'm getting that. I'm really glad I did. Hot take. H.G. Wells wrote good science fiction. Um, <laughs> but I mean, wow. But if you consider that this book was written in the 19th century and released in 1896, that just makes it that much more incredible. This yeah. was obviously decades before Hugo Gernsbeck, Gernsbeck uh, coined scientific fiction. Don Wolheim wisely made uh, took the ick off. And, um, you know, before we had the term science fiction, this was yep. uh, one of H.G. Wells' scientific romances, as he called them. <laughs> uh, have you ever read Island of Dr. Moreau? I, I have not. Yeah, it's great. Um, hot take. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, I read over 86 books uh, last year. Are there any on the list that I don't have listed that you have questions about, Larry? I have more a question of books that you don't have on the list. Okay. Uh, yeah. First of all, like, so you, this year, it seems that you didn't read well, oh, no, there's one, there's a, I, I see one or two, maybe Star Trek books, no Star Wars books, no, no real series books. It seems like you are very much into one shot, interesting, transitional, like stories and uh, uh, the new wave authors and stuff like that. And modern things. Well, modern keep in mind. I'm also, I'm a library user, so it depends what books come in at the library sometimes. Um, I did read a couple Star Trek books this year, including reading- That's one of them. Yeah, uh, two. I read two, or okay. three, no, I read three Star Trek books this year. And one of those was a reread um, of Federation, which is my all-time favorite Star Trek novel right. for the third or fourth time. I'm not even quite sure. Um which I did for, for my Star Trek podcast, Story, Myth, and Arcs, Star Trek Story, Myth, and Arcs. So I did read that, but with Star Wars, I think the reason I didn't read any Star Wars this year is there was not a new Star Wars film to come out. And usually I'm reading the, like, for example, last year before Rise of Skywalker, I read Re Rebecca Roanhorse's uh, Resistance Reborn because I knew it was feeding right. into the movie. And yeah, but there's the Mandalorian. But there's no, there's no tie-in no tie novels that, 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 that kind of came Oh, really? Out kick that off however though timothy oliphant's character spoil oh that's kind of a spoiler but the, <laughs> the character that he plays is, is, it, is uh, the, the character in the first episode of this season of the mandalorian cad vance i think is his name uh he was introduced in the chuck windig um star wars novel aftermath the first one and, oh, yeah, yeah. and what i really love about them doing that is that there's a scene where he explains how he got a certain item in the book. And that's the chapter where he's introduced in the in one of the vignette chapters in Aftermath. And it's slightly different how he explains it in The Mandalorian. And it's funny because I saw a bunch of nerds freaking out, like saying, that's not how it happened. And it's like, <laughs> well, he's a fucking liar. He's obviously telling his version of the events it's not going to be exactly what it was yeah and i thought that was really neat and i thought it was intentional 
as Admiral Ackbar would say, it's a trap and a lot of nerds fell into it. So uh, I, guess, I guess the thing about the Mandalorian is you, you've probably read a lot of the, the, the old canon stuff that they're tying back into new canon. Yeah. So you don't have to read anything of, of that. Yeah. And you are correct to note that, that there are some years where I read heavy Star Wars novels and, and, yeah. um, and also one of my favorite times to read Star Wars novels are like long flights or trips when I have to, or, or when I'm going to be on the train for a while or, or, or something like that, uh, because they're, they, they, I kind of shut my brain off a little bit and just kind of let that go. And, and yeah, they're, much, they're a little bit easier reads. I think that's what I was trying to say is it looks like a lot of the stuff that you read this year, I mean, 86 books and all of them seem to be not, there's no fluff. <laughs> I mean, you read, you read extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond earth by Avi Lieb. That's I mean, low. Low. that's that's something that uh, most people wouldn't read. Well, I'll get to that. In, I'll, we'll get to that in, in the <laughs> countdown. But, uh, right, but uh, there seems to be a lot of that that kind of stuff, classic stuff. And um, I would say that book is less of a heavy science read than I read early in the year. I read uh, something deeply hidden um, by Sean Carroll, the physicist, and that's like right. about quantum worlds and space time and I'm going to pretend like I understood a lot of it, but, you know, some of it I did, but uh, that was much more of a intense science read. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's weird. I didn't read a lot of fluffy stuff. You're, you're correct. Because, and I would even say that one of the Star Trek books that I read, which is Una McCormick's prequel to Picard, the, the start, the, the new series, right. Picard, I actually think is an incredible novel. I think, Una is a very talented writer and what a lot of people won't realize is, is that she's kind of a wonk for political science as well as like a giant Star Trek nerd. And I interviewed her for my Star Trek podcast, but that book is, um, is a really good, is a really good kind of political science angle to uh, set up the events of the TV series. And I actually thought it was, um, a uh, very well-structured and crafted novel and a good piece of writing. And um, hmm. I'm excited to read more of her. She wrote a Cardassian-themed novel about Garrick that she says was influenced by Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, which is <laughs> one of wow. my favorite novels. And as we will discuss later, I think is becoming a genre unto a subgenre unto itself, which is novels influenced by The Dispossessed. Uh, right. <laughs> our first guest on the Dickheads podcast, our first interview, uh, Carrie Vaughn, her um, novel Bannerless is is a prime example of that. It's a yeah. mystery, but influenced by the dispossessed. So, so yeah, I mean, no, there wasn't a lot of fluff this year. In fact, as I look at the list. Um, <laughs> and yeah, do you uh, normally read this much uh, nonfiction? I would like to read more. There's you, a lot. You do have quite a few, quite a few nonfiction books in your in your yeah a couple yeah and uh i don't really list the books that i read for research for writing um because i don't read the books cover to cover but there are some times where the okay. books that i read for research will include you know 70 or 80 pages of reading 
but uh, so there, there is that. And so there are most of the nonfiction books that I read, I don't read cover to cover. And so I do not list those. So there, there generally is a nonfiction book on the coffee table looked at. Uh, right, not right. for research purposes. But every book that's on the list is something that I read cover to cover. Yeah. So the nonfiction books this year, and they're going to be a lot more next year, are about the genre. I'm reading more books specifically about science fiction. And, and there's quite a few that I, I like, uh, for example, Barry Maltzberg's Breakfast in the Ruins, in, which is about science Maybe fiction. Maybe Utopia and Reality. That seems like an interesting one. Yeah, that book was not what I expected it to be. That was, I was expecting it to be about utopian novels. And I was expecting to have, you know, be making lists on Goodreads of utopian novels that I wanted to read. And I did find a couple, but that book is actually about documentary film and activism and how right. the, you, the stories, utopian stories of today are being told more often now in documentary film than in novels. Like there's less dystopian novels, but there's a lot of documentaries that are trying to envision solutions and- Right, know. yeah, innovation towards that goal. Yes, and then also there's a really good article in there by one of the editors, uh, Simon Spiegel, about how ISIS uses utopian documentary films on the internet to uh, spread uh, that stuff. <laughs> and that was that article was actually fairly important for my uh, speculative fiction and the war on terrorism article. So, so yeah, that book was, that was cool. That was a D. Harlan Wilson suggestion, actually. Oh, yeah. But, well, uh, he has good taste. Yeah. But so the, uh, uh, there's, okay, so I have one more. That's, okay. And it's, again, uh, just an outlier, I think, of, of what you, your, your normal intake is, but the Chasing the Light, the Oliver Stone book, seemed yeah. like an interesting choice. <laughs> I actually really like Oliver Stone as a filmmaker. I think he's hit or miss. I mean, he's definitely had some really bad movies, but, uh, but when he's firing, I think Platoon is is an incredible film and one of the best Vietnam movies. And I've always really enjoyed listening to Oliver Stone talk about writing mm -hmm. and filmmaking. And so I was hoping that that book, because the first thing it says is writing, directing and surviving. And it's basically, it's not a biography of his life. It's basically about the period of, it, it's his whole life up until the success of Platoon, basically. Okay. And I don't know what his intentions were in writing this book, but it kind of made me less of a fan just because he's being very honest about what a dickweed he was for, for a lot of that time. I think I got more out of listening to the Platoon commentary track. <laughs> uh, really? Than I did reading the book. I, I'm happy I read the book, but if more filmmakers wrote biographies, I, I would read more of them you know I, I would love to see uh quentin write a book like this and since he's just hiding in israel right now um like he's just hanging in israel he has plenty of time to write a book like that so i, I hope he does but yeah well, I, I do like uh robert rodriguez's book i can't remember the title of it but from a long time ago uh he wrote about the making of um 
of uh, yeah i read that um there's an outlaw with a camera or something like that or yeah yeah something like that yeah that's, that's, a great, a, that's an interesting book un, unto itself yeah 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 that is a that is a great book and i will say that I, do you want to know what my biggest disappointment was reading because i didn't yeah sure yeah that sounds like something good <laughs> my biggest disappointment is a non-recommendation well, I think some people will like this book, but uh, I did not like *Devolution*, the firsthand account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre by Max Brooks. Um, really? And here's the thing. Uh, do you, do you like Max Brooks' other works? Um, World War Z was okay. I liked it. I do not like that style of storytelling where, you, where it's all journal entries and things. And that's one of the reasons yeah. why this book probably would work for some people but wouldn't work for me because it's told that way um for me that's like found footage it's just like you <laughs> it's so obvious when the writers are trying to force story into the format and i hate that i i really hate that and like dracula yeah uh dracula's example of it working carrie is an example of that working although so I'm not, I'm not saying that it, it can't, can't be done, but I just think that there's times where Max Books was trying to force the story into the format here. Right. And one of the reasons why I was disappointed in it and why I, continue, I, why I read it anyways is that um, over the last year, I think Max Brooks has been like one of the best podcast guests um, and the really? podcast interviews in the last year, especially since the coronavirus started. And so I really enjoy him on podcasts and I enjoy right. listening to him talk. And I think I would like hanging out with Max Brooks, right? And I like how his mind thinks. <clears throat> I just don't like how he tells the stories. So yeah, and it, it was definitely, and, and it was not the best Sasquatch book I read this year either. Um, I, I, I would say that goes to Stonefish, Scott R. Jones. But yeah, that was the most disappointing read of the year for me. But I finished it, so. Right, so it, at least it, it it got completed. Yeah, no, I don't. A lot I, of books, a lot of books actually out there that I just, I, I have this sort of limit of 70 pages. If, I, if I'm still bored at 70 pages, I'm out, can't do it. Yeah, I broke that rule a couple times this year and was glad of it because books got better, but if I start a book and don't finish it, it's generally not on this list. And there was only <laughs> yeah. two books this year I had a hard time with. And and one was, and I have a rule, if somebody sends me a, a review copy of a book and I don't like it, I give them the chance to, to let me tap out and not write an, an unfavorable... A bad review or... Yeah. I'll let them know that I'm going to be honest because I am in the... And I want people to know that they can trust me. If I don't like a book, I'm going to, I'm going to say it. Right. Um, you know, for example, there's books that I really wanted to put on my top 10 list this year by people really have genuine fondness for, but their books just didn't make my list. Um, the Loop by Jeremy Robert Johnson. I love Jeremy and I love the book. It just didn't quite make it to my top 10 list. I think The Loop is great and I think everyone should read it. Uh, it just didn't make my top 10 list. And then, um, for example, Lost Tribe by Gene O'Neill. I love Gene. Uh, I love his books. Uh, it just didn't make my top 10 list. It's a great book, though. 
uh, Stay Ugly by Daniel Velasti. Very good. Just didn't make my list. Well, uh, not every book can make the top 10. No, no, no. That's true. I'm generally but, a pretty positive guy. I try to find true. the best in everything. But So we have one more category before we get into yeah. the top 10 list. So what what, what made you uh, uh, decide to choose this category of favorite PKD book? Well, because I'm reading close to 10 P PKD books a year for the podcast. 10 or 11. 10 or 11, yeah. So I'm reading a lot of Philip K. Dick right now. So it's easy that my top retro reads could all be PKD. On a certain, like last year, That's true. last year we read a bunch of really good PKD, like Three Stigmata and so on. And well, this year wasn't the best batch. I have a favorite PKD this year. I think the best PKD I read is, is fairly predictable and that's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? But I read it three times before. So I wouldn't say it was my favorite this year. My favorite this year was the Zap Gun because um, I loved the Zap Gun. I liked it more than everybody else on, on, on the uh, podcast. And we had Scott R. Jones true. as a guest. And I, I just thought the book was very funny and it just, it, it hit all the right spots for me. And if you had, if we had read the unteleported man by itself without the lies ink parts, it may have been the unteleported man, but, um, hmm. but I think the best PKD stuff I read this year was, was tertiary was the things that influenced him, the Tony Boucher stuff, the world of Nulle. I, 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 really enjoyed getting into the things around PKD this year more so than right. the actual PKD. What was your favorite one that you read this year? Was it still Android? Well, I'm trying to figure out what we read this year because I know the episodes were, there, a lot of our episodes were released this year, but are you, said, are you sure that Three Stigmata was last year? Because that episode was released this year. Um, but we recorded, I know we recorded it before the pandemic because we were in studio. Yeah. So I think it was last year. It's possible. Yeah. But <laughs> of the, uh, so if I'm looking past Three Stigmata, I would have to say, I mean, is it, is it too obvious to go with, uh, do androids dream of electric sheep? No, it isn't. I, I do. Mean, that's I think it's the best one that we read this year. I just, my favorite was the zap gun. I, I just, I had a lot of fun laughing. With the experience of reading yeah. it. Yeah. Cause it was a new experience. I'd read androids twice before. So yeah, that's kind of why it feels that way for me. But I, I will say now wait for last year was one I really enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, good. Because of the, sure. It had those, those weird drug scenes are going to see a lot more of as we get into the books of the seventies, but that one kind of like, to me, it felt like a turning point in his, in his writing where he's just starting to get into those weird corners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have a lot of really good stuff coming up. Oh yeah. Galactic pot healer, Ubik, flow my tears. So fun stuff coming. Yeah. So, um, so, and so if anybody listening to this has not checked out um, our other podcast uh, dickheads uh, for PKD, we of course highly recommend it. Even if you don't read PKD, you can use us as cliff notes. So end uh, sales pitch for dickheads. And plus there's all of Anthony's hot takes. 
That's yeah, he hates everything. Watch. So yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Should here we, we, here we go. David's top reads in the terrible year of 2020. All right. So number 10, the only nonfiction read of the top 10 list. And we talked about this one a little bit. Yes. And this book is actually not released yet. I got a pre um, copy of Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth by Avi Loeb. I've interviewed Avi the, for this podcast, but I'm not allowed to release it until close, closer to the release of the book, which will be towards the end of January. So look forward to that. And Avi Loeb is a Harvard astronomy professor. He's my favorite space nerd on the planet. <laughs> he is, what I like about Avi Loeb as a, uh, as a professor of astronomy is that Avi does not give a shit <laughs> if people think he's crazy and he loves to think speculatively. So one thing you can look forward to on the podcast is I said, what's the weirdest thought you've had recently? And he starts telling me about a way to that he, something that he had written on a napkin about bouncing signals off the entire planet to send signals to other galaxies. Um, <laughs> right. All and, right. Yes. And so this book, Extraterrestrial, is Avi Loeb's book where he argues that we have already seen evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence beyond Earth, that we've already seen it. That uh, and that is in the form of the space object that came through our solar system, Oumuamua. He argues, and that the whole book is 200 pages. It, it takes it tells some of his story and how he got into science and makes it a little personal. But he also talks about basic basically the argument of the book is Oumuamua does not act like a natural object. It acts like it is a solar. Uh, like light sail powered device. And the way that it comes through our solar system, it just couldn't happen naturally. And what he does is- oh, go, go, go ahead and explain what that means, on not, how it seems not natural. Well, what it, what it did is that Oumuamua came Didn't into- it, it came into our solar- course slightly or something? It came into our solar system from above, came down, hit the- the plane where the planets are around Saturn, right? Turned, went in and went past a bunch of our planets and then went back out, right? Scientists. So it's not a natural arc. No, no orbit. It, 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 it changed paths. It, it, it just, and what Avi is arguing is that scientists are tying themselves into pretzels to try and explain how this could happen naturally in things like they're saying, oh, it's just like a comet, it outgassed, and then the, the outgas made it change directions, but there's no evidence. They say that, but then there's no evidence that it outgassed. You know, um, there's just, and uh, listen, he's gonna make the argument better than I could. <laughs> yeah, right, in the book. <laughs> in the book, and you should read the book, because if you but think- It seems like what he's, what he's really saying, what Abby's really saying is, it's Occam's razors that the easiest solution is that it did change course. That's right. And that it's likely a scout 
um, that was checking in on our solar system. He doesn't argue that we know what it is or we have any idea what it is. He's just saying it's right. ridiculous to assume that it's not. And also that to just dismiss it offhand that it's not possible is just uh, refuting what's right in front of your face is what basically right. what he's arguing. What's awesome too, if you listen to the podcast is that wrote a book review of extraterrestrial on my blog and he actually quoted the book review in his PowerPoint to Oxford, to 400 astronomy students at Oxford, which was awesome. Um, and you can see the moment on the podcast where I find that out and kind of lose my shit. And basically he quoted me saying that what Amuamua did was fucking rad. And he said it's the first time that any of his research was described with an F-bomb. <laughs> and uh, so I had some fun with Avi on the podcast. I look forward to everybody being able to hear it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I definitely am very proud of that episode. And we just get into some weird stuff because Avi, and, and if you get a chance to listen to any interviews with Avi Loeb, it's great. He always has wild and interesting ideas and he's not afraid to let his mind go to, to, to very weird speculative ideas of, um, of science. Now, that being said, if you get him going on science fiction, he, he, he doesn't, he's not going to suffer any of the bullshit in science fiction. Um, <laughs> so it, it's very, well, I, I like the, I, I like the idea of starting your ideas as far away from what we know as possible and then working it back to reality. Yes. It makes, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And, and he is doing real uh, groundbreaking revolutionary science. He's working on building a probe that can go to Alpha Centauri um, with a, a program called the Breakthrough Starshot. And basically what people were saying for years and years and years was humanity will never be able to get there because it's too far away. So Avi Loeb is a person who said, well, don't just decide it's too far away and we can't do it. <laughs> so he designed these micro probes that can be pushed by lasers. You know, it's that out of the box thinking, and I hate to use the, the tritest fucking possible phrase, but it's that kind of thinking that makes Avi Loeb um, a gift to uh, astronomy and makes him awesome. Right. And so therefore, uh, yeah, number 10 on my list is, and it could have been higher, because honestly, it's the most important book on my list because he's basically saying we've already seen evidence that, that there's... Yeah. Now, he's not saying that these civilizations still exist. They could have perished thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago, and Muamua could just be like still wandering, just like our Voyager probes will be wandering for thousands. Wandering, yeah. Yeah. So that's number 10. So number nine is... The Living Dead by George A. Romero and Daniel Krauss. Now, now, I'm curious about this. Is this is this a book of fiction or nonfiction? This is a novel, and it's a doorstop novel. Okay. It's a 600-page novel, and George Romero was writing this book when he found out that he was terminally ill and had about a third of it written all of it planned. I interviewed Daniel for the podcast and it's a really interesting read because it's a very interesting project. He didn't meet George or talk to, well, he met George once 10 years before that, but he 
did not meet with him about the book. So he had to collaborate with somebody who had already passed on and had to finish the book based on notes. And it is the ultimate bookend to Romero's films. You have to think of Romero's films as not being set in the decades that they were filmed. He, he wants you to think of them as evergreen films that they all take place in one timeline, which I know is hard to kind of wrap your brain around because Night of the Living Dead is so 60s and Dawn is so 70s. Right. Okay, so 80s. But, but the way Daniel explains it is that the first, the, the way to consume Romero's dead saga is to read the beginning of The Living Dead. And there's a certain point, he says it in the interview, where you stop and you watch Diary of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, hmm. Land of the or Land of the Dead. So I don't know. Anyways, you read them in a particular order, and then you go back and you finish reading The Living Dead, which begins at the beginning of the zombie outbreak and then ends the story the way George wanted it to end. And the last bookends the all everything else yes and i should note as san diegans that uh, according to now canon because george romero considered this book to be canon that the zombie apocalypse in all the romero films starts at the medical examiner's office in san diego so we should get we should start working on a plaque because um and the most interesting characters in the book are the medical examiner characters from San Diego. They are the most interesting characters. And that storyline, in my opinion, out of the 600 pages is, is the best. And it jumps around in time, obviously, to it starts at the very beginning of the plague and then goes all the way till 20 years after. It's great and it's really good. Uh, Daniel's a, a very talented writer. He wrote Shape of Water with Guillermo del Toro. Um, which a lot of people don't realize was was written as a novel and a film concurrently, like uh, two thousand one. Okay. And uh, like they came and it was and well, shit. was it written? Was it written? It wasn't written like that though, because didn't they take the idea and write separately? Kubrick and and Clark take the idea write no they, separately? they collaborated together on all of it. Um, oh, did they? Yeah, yeah. And same with Shape of Water. Uh, uh, which was originally Daniel's idea. Guillermo was looking to do a, a, a creature of the Black Lagoon type story his whole life. And so when Daniel came to him with the idea, Guillermo jumped on it. And they had worked together on the Troll Hunter books before that. Mm. So, so uh, they already had a working relationship. But anyways, Daniel then is a giant Romero Living Dead super fan. So this was the dream project for him. Dream. Yeah. Living the dream. Yes. And so the book is very good. Um, I would say that it's obvious that George was, with the parts that he wrote, he was trying to do things he didn't have the budget to do in movies. There's a whole outbreak that takes place off the coast here in San Diego on an aircraft carrier that is obviously stuff he never had the money to do. Right. Um, and then... Uh, but when once it shoots ahead in time, there's just some really interesting stuff. If you, you you don't want to spend any time thinking about what Daniel wrote and what George wrote, but it's really interesting because 
he had written two a third of the novel but not the first third right he started in the middle and wrote some of the end then also daniel found skipped around can you can do you get a sense of who wrote what or is it just very natural well if you listen to my interview with them i get it wrong a couple times and a couple times i got it right um all right but no you can't really tell um daniel was trying to write in george's voice a lot and um but it's funny because there's there's definitely parts where i was like was that george and he was like no that was totally me and so but there's also one of the things that i loved about um living dead is that uh what he did was he took it was kind of like archaeology of the project he also found 100 pages of a started zombie novel that had nothing to do with this project and he found ways to work in huge chunks of this unpublished manuscript uh, that was a different zombie novel and then he also took some some prose from short stories that george romero had written and not published and worked those into it so worked it into the novel so it's really interesting yeah it's really interesting how it came together um it is long i I really enjoyed it and i'm kind of over zombies too like everybody else and um but i think i think this is this one was, was was very worthy so are you a fan of the living dead movie from the from the master so right yeah but are you a fan of the living dead movies yeah oh yeah you were supposed to vamp so i could drink water oh yeah so they're the best (laughs) i wouldn't have it any other way i i even like Zack snyder's movie Ooh. yeah actually i don't hate it i wanted to hate it but um but yeah i wanted to i wanted to too I, but i think he did a great job with the material it's one of the few daniel snyder or uh, zach snyder not daniel he's the owner of the reds the washington football team <laughs> zach snyder uh i think dawn of the dead might be the only movie of his that i'm a fan of actually. you like wow yeah all right number eight is ministry for the future by kim stanley robinson I have to say, I was expecting this to be higher on my list before I read it because, well, if you go back a couple of years, Kim Stanley Robinson has had the top slot in my best of the year reads a couple times with especially 2312, which I thought was an incredible novel and uh, Aurora, which is absolutely probably my favorite science fiction novel of the 21st century. Wow. Yeah, Aurora is incredible. It's funny because Aurora is his generation ship novel right and a lot of people i remember you telling me about that one a lot of people it's funny because people will say oh it's interesting he did he's been doing all these cli-fi books he's been doing all this climate fiction books and then he goes and does this generation book the generation starship book but aurora is a cli-fi book too um it just it has a different setup but yes this is probably kim stanley robinson's final say on climate fiction this this book ministry i was gonna ask is it is it related to any of the other books or is it standalone it stands alone and it is kind of it it's funny he has the same influence as uh bruner did for stand on zanzibar the don pesos uh usa trilogy it's got that anti-novel format where it has a lot of vignettes and pieces and individual parts and 
There's an entire first person chapter written by photons. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. That's right it, up my alley. There, but there are through there is a through uh, story through part of it. There are characters because he is um, one of one of the things too about um, Kim Stanley Robinson is that he is a he is a writer who believe he likes to think of himself as a character driven writer. I don't know that he is so much, but the the characters that are there are strong. And I think Ministry for the Future the the concept of this book is that what if there was an agency like the World Health Organization whose entire focus was protecting the people of the future and protecting the future, right? Wow. Uh, to be thinking down the line instead of just thinking about today. And it's ridiculous that we would need an agency to do that. But... That's an interesting concept. Right. But the Ministry for the Future isn't in it quite as much as you would think. But what he's trying to do is kind of a utopian. He's trying to write a book that that offers solutions for the climate issues, right? Instead of just saying, here's the problems, here are solutions. And right. uh, I think it would be higher on my list if I didn't think, and Kim Stanley Robinson has admitted himself that he was nervous about going towards the territories of violence and resistance. I think yeah. that that is a weakness of the book. He, he admits that he was afraid to kind of tackle those subjects because he's a nonviolent person. I do think that that is a weakness because uh, one of the inciting incidents of the book is a heat wave in India that kills 20 million people. And if 20 million people die because of a heat wave, I think there would be uh, a lot of violence in the world. Um, I'm not inclined to agree with you on that, but well, at least does... given, given our, our past year. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, we'll see. Um, but there is um, there is a resistance in the book to uh, to flying where people basically give up flight because of the heat waves. And then you see like the different ways that there are people who try to hold on to those things and the people that resist to it. So that is going on there. It is a really interesting. Well, book. I do like it. Right. I mean, it is number eight on my list. It's just <laughs> with what it was about, I I thought it might be higher on my list. Have you read any Ken Stanley Robinson, Larry? I I haven't read anything. Nope. Yeah. One of those one of those glaring holes in my my reading. Uh, yeah, that's Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Number seven is number seven. <laughs> yeah, is a book that was the last the author that I last saw at a book signing before the pandemic started. In fact, I was at that book signing when somebody said the NBA just canceled their season. <laughs> it was that. Oddly, that's what got me. That's uh, one of the things that got me to uh, finally uh, isolate myself was the, the, the canceling, the canceling of, of not the NBA, but the canceling of the Final Four. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That, to, that, me, that, to me, that's a bigger deal than the NBA. To me, that just went. Oh wait a second, this is huge. Yeah, this is serious. 
All right, so number seven is Mexican Gothic by Silvia Marino Garcia. This book has been a huge hit this year, um, getting a lot of attention and selling very, very well. I'm very happy for Sylvia. Uh, that is super cool. Um, she's a writer who has written a lot of really interesting stuff, but I think this is her first like really huge success. And this was a hardcover from Delray, so it's not like, you know, a little publisher or anything but uh npr promoted it and i think it got the goodreads fan vote for the goodreads horror novel of the year i believe but i really loved her vampire her um vampire drug dealer mexico city novel um uh certain dark things from a couple years ago i really like that book um which unfortunately is out of print i hope that the success of Mexican Gothic will get it back in print. But Mexican Gothic is your typical, like kind of Gothic giant, scary house novel uh, right. that takes place in the Mexican countryside. And the main character is a, a woman from Mexico City who has a sister or a cousin or something. I, it's been a little bit since I read it, who is married into this family that has this grand estate out in out in the wilds of Mexico. And when she gets there, it gets really freaking weird and it gets very Lovecraftian. Um, uh, Sylvia Moreno Garcia is, is, um, has edited books on, for women writers writing about Lovecraft mythos. So she is, she is very uh, learned on the Lovecraft pastiche. Cool. Although I don't think this novel, this novel is not pastiche. It's, it's very well written um, and it, it has a very cool edge and um, it gets really bonkers towards the end. It starts off, it's got a slow burn in the beginning, but it definitely um, starts rocking when you get later in. So uh, Mexican Gothic by Silvia Marino Garcia, definitely recommended. Number six. Six, six. Um, one of the first interviews that I did specifically for this podcast was Laird Barron about yeah. the, this book, Worse Angels, the third book of the Isaiah Coleridge trilogy. And, now, have you read the other two? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I read all three. I would actually say that the first book is my favorite of the three, um, although I, I loved all three books all three are five-star books. Um, well, yeah, the, this is a, a, thir a second sequel to his his first book. So, and well, it's it a crime novel. Number six, number six on your book of the year list. So, so had to be pretty good. Yes, and so what's going on with Laird is Laird is um, generally considered a short fiction. Like he's most known for his short Lovecraftian fiction and his like weird fiction he's uh, he he got a lot of notoriety because nick pizzolato when he was cribbing a bunch of stuff for true detective one of the authors that he mentioned as an influence was laird baron laird before the isaiah coleridge novels had only written mostly like weird fiction and science fiction so the first isaiah coleridge book was his first crime novel with no weirdness and it's just a brutal, just awesome, ugly, dirty, nasty crime novel with great dialogue and just really, really great stuff. 
each book in the trilogy gets weirder and gets more layered as it goes on. So, so this is a detective story? Well, he's like a former mob enforcer who becomes a private detective. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he's like Mari, uh, like his family is like Mari, New Zealand native, but grew up Maori. Maori and grows up in, Aus in, uh, Australia, in Alaska and then, but has to mo move away from Alaska when he fucks up the wrong person, ends up becoming a private detective in upstate New York. It's really good stuff. Hmm. It gets really, really, really nasty. I like Laird as a horror writer. I love Laird as a crime writer, but the books do get- Yeah, that's what I was gonna ask you. If it's, if it's straight detective mystery, there, is there not a horror element in it? Well, the, <laughs> let me just say that the books get weirder as they go on. Okay. Uh, but one of the reasons I like Blood Standard, the first book in the series, is that it's completely straightforward crime. There's no, there's no weird fiction, anything. Um, there is a serial killer in the second book. There is some really weird shit in the third book. I don't really want to give it away. I just think people people should read it. I, I definitely, I love these books. And I think Blood Standard in particular, the first book is, is uh, top notch and um, should really be read. All right, so my number five. In the genre of books influenced by The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin is Vagabonds by Hong Jingfang translated by Ken Liu. And I, and as much as you know, I'm terrible at pronunciation, I know that one's correct. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just did an interview with the Chinese translators and it is Han Jing Fang. She is an interesting Chinese science fiction writer because she is very famous in China, but not for her fiction. <laughs> not oh yeah? Yeah. And she wrote a novelette that is in um, Invisible Planets, the collection of Chinese science fiction translated by Ken Liu that came out a couple years ago. Very, it's an okay. anthology. And her entry in that book, Folding Beijing, is one of the coolest and weirdest and most awesome short fiction, short story, science fiction stories I've read in years. It's really good. It's basically, it's about a future Beijing where the city folds in on itself at given times of the day and you have a shift where you have to be in your sleep nodule sleeping because <laughs> you're folded in and that you're only allowed to be awake and out when your part of the city shifts and folds out. Okay. It's so like a, the inception kind of folding or? It's awesome. It should be, it should definitely be um, a Black Mirror episode. It's great. I did not like this novel as much as that short story, but it is number five on my list. I think this one more than any other novel is on my list because of what it achieved more so than how I actually felt about it. Okay. But getting well, back to- what does, it, what does that mean? <laughs> what it achieved? We'll, we'll get there. But Han okay. Jingfang, one of the reasons why she's famous in China is because she is an she's a teacher and an education reformer. She is one of, she has started, um, she has opened schools in rural areas of China and she's known as a education entrepreneur. And she gives lectures and talks around the world as an educator and a teacher. 
and she writes science fiction on the side. She also recently started a product, but using her fame and her success in China, she has translated that into starting a production company that is making science fiction movies. And they made a movie last year that I know many of us saw called Wander The Wandering Earth based on the author of the Three Body Problems novella, The Wandering Earth. Did you not hear about, I saw Wandering Earth in the theater last year at the- but The name sounds familiar, but I, I, I know I haven't seen it, but- it, It's a bonkers movie. You should see it. It's um, basically in it, the earth is, the climate change has gotten- Oh, right. Okay. Okay. I, I, I remember the trailer for that one. Yeah, they build giant engines and push the earth yeah. further away from the sun. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. She was one of the people who produced that movie. Um, All but, right. So Vagabonds is a, this novel is takes place on Mars. It is about the social and political dynamics between earth and Mars in this future where a cold, where Mars has been cut off from earth for a hundred years and there's a cold war yeah yeah and yeah you told me about this <laughs> a lot of people that will read this book will this is a more of a social science fiction novel than than yeah. this isn't pew pew a couple people that i know that have tried have read this have given up on this book because they found it boring and couldn't get into it if you're not into the political science fiction kind of thing uh ken stanley robinson fans will, will dig this ursula Le Guin fans will right. dig this and it is clear the Hong Jingfang is a fan of the dispossessed, even though it comes to very different conclusions. And one of the things that's interesting about this book is it would be really easy and knee-jerk reaction to think that the capitalist Earth in the book represents America and Mars represents China. But, but that's absolutely not the case. It's not the case. Keep in mind that Mars has a tiny, tiny population and it's very hard to compare a small colony world to um, the most populated country on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> and also keep in mind, uh, Hun Jingfang is not a radical or a, a super angry lefty, <laughs> right? She, yeah. she, she's a national, she's, she's a Chinese idealist. So a lot of the book is questioning the idea of these are the ideals that we are taught and told and we would like to achieve them. And this is how we would like to achieve them. It's mm -hmm. not so much saying our country sucks. This book is more saying our country can be this. Our country can be this. And she's not just talking about Mars or Earth. It's not didactic in that way. It's, it's, it's talking about both, that both cultures and civilizations can be better. So it's an interesting book. And what I meant by saying that I like it more, I think it's a number five book, more for what it says and what it does, then yes, it is a 600 page doorstop book. And yes, it could have been shorter. It, yes, it could have been quicker. The reading experience is, is a slow one, but I like what the book is saying and what it did and what it taught me about Chinese society, because it's really easy to just assume like, Hey, they have a, a kind of total, you know, dictatorship or, you know, their party is really, you know, everybody must hate that country. You know, they must hate their government. <laughs> what it really, what, what this book did for me was to say like, yeah, they don't necessarily, not necessarily everyone hates their system. They don't hate, she doesn't hate living in China. She wants to improve it. She's working to improve it. 
And that comes right. through in the book. And, and wow. so that, in that sense, I really liked this book because I thought as a piece of Chinese science fiction, it was, it was teaching me about another culture by reading about it. So that's Vagabonds by Hong Jing. Well, a lot of the, a lot of those themes seem universal to every country, right? You just, you're in that country, you grew up in that country, you want that country to be the best it can possibly be and the most open and blah, 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 whatever your, whatever that goal is for your country. Yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense universally, not just about China. Yeah. All right. So the next two books on my list are, are both podcast guests here on, on this show. And number four is the way, well, these both, both these next two books are way too timely for 2020. The next one, number four is Survivor Song by Paul Tremblay. Survivor I, I, Song. I think that one made the top 100 list on, uh, on uh, NPR. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. It's, it's, it's an incredible book. Paul is, is becoming one of the biggest names in horror fiction. I think I personally liked Cabin at the End of the World a little better than Survivor Song. Hmm. Um, his last book before this, Survivor Song is an incredible work of pandemic fiction, and it is about a rabies outbreak. It is a zombie novel without the zombie, without the Z word ever used. Um, and it, it was written pre-COVID, correct? Yes, yes, it was written pre-COVID. He did not know that he was going to be releasing the book into a global, pan uh, well, a pandemic. All pandemics are global. <laughs> global yeah. yeah so he did not know that he was releasing it into this but yeah survivor song is what's cool about it is is it's it's a lot like 28 weeks later in the sense that once the story gets going the pace is really incredible and the basic concept it's clear, you know what when you you know when when people when authors get asked where did you get the idea or where did the idea come from, it's very mm -hmm. clear when you read Survivor Song where the idea came from, because the concept is, what if there was somebody who was infected, in this case with rate with this, this insane rabies that turns you into a raving lunatic, what if they were pregnant? Could you save the baby? Oh, okay. All right. With and even though the mother is a lost case, because of that, Survivor Song has an incredible ticking clock um, in in the book. It would be more meaningful for people that don't hate children like you and I. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> for people who, who um, and I'm I'm only half kidding because I actually uh, I'm a teacher, so <laughs> I like I like autistic. I'm not. I'm not kidding. Um, I don't wish them ill, but I ain't trying to make their lives better. <laughs> Survivor Song is a really cool ticking clock. It's one of the best ticking clock novels that I've ever read. It has really strong characters for the moments that it does. It's really neat how it's constructed. Um, I really enjoyed my conversation with Paul on the podcast. We did entirely spoilers, so don't listen to it unless you have read the book. But I think there's a lot of really cool lessons in there for for uh, for writers. But yeah, so when you, when you read it, do you hear the music from or that that bump 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 from uh, 24 going in the background? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, it is. 
it, it is it does kind of have that that structure of it because it's all one night and it's all contained and um but man paul pulled it off i i, I think it's, it's it's really incredible um and uh, you know it's funny because this is one of the ones you told me about that i i, I feel like i have to i have to read this one yeah i think you would re you'd really like it and obviously it's number four on my list for for good reason so uh number three is a sequel that I think is as good, if not better, than the original. And that is Mallory by Josh Mallerman. And talk about a book that is way more 2020 than it ever should have been. For those of you who don't know the concept of Bird Box, I'm, it was the most downloaded movie on Netflix for a long time. I think before, until Queen's Gambit. But the concept of Bird Box obviously is that there are these creatures and that if you see them, they will drive you insane. Good. That's a really good plot device. I like that. Yeah. And that idea. Yeah. And if people have only seen the movie and not read the book, they're really, it's really too bad. And I feel sorry for them that they didn't get to read it before they saw the movie. Because one of the things that works best in the book is that for the first 70 pages, you don't know if Mallory is crazy or if this is really happening. And that's totally lost in the movie adaptation but in in the... i'm not i'm not a big fan of the movie so yeah. I, I thought it had some great parts but i i know you you've you've said the book is like 10 times the movie so yes and probably for that reason and josh mallerman is an incredible writer and one of the things like it, it's kind of the thing with mallory and bird box and all that is that this his success has kind of turned it into you know how it's like you, it's too cool to like Rage Against the Machine because like frat bros like them. But right. if, if you really get down <laughs> to it, Rage Against the Machine has good music. It's just the frat bros like them and, it, and it's hard. To, to, mm -hmm. to, to, mm -hmm. And so with Bird Box, uh, Josh's success is so just, just, just through the roof, atmospheric, crazy success that it would be easy to kind of downplay like what an incredible craftsman he is. He was in kind of an overnight success with Bird Box. He was for, he'd written 10 novels before Bird Box got published while he was touring the touring as a musician. So he did his- it's a hell of an overnight. <laughs> it, yeah, he, it looks like an overnight success, but he was working for years on this. That's my point. No one should poo-poo uh, Mallerman's ability to construct story and suspense. He's incredible at it. And for that reason, I think even if you've seen the movie Bird Box, I think the movie or the book is is um, is one of the few books that just really can is unnerving and can be scary. And the sequel, Mallory, is every bit as good. And in fact, mm. it's weird and interesting things with um and part of what makes mallory such an incredible book for 2020 is that in the in the book in the movie bird box she has to save these two little kids right along with herself but in mallory they're teenagers and it becomes a very different story because they are teenagers and then they get rebellious and they've grown up wearing a blindfold and having to wear the blindfold everywhere it becomes a plot point where 
the idea of I don't want to wear the blindfold becomes part of the story. Right. And it becomes like the debate of the people who refuse to wear masks in public during the pandemic. Yeah, it's a, yeah, seems entirely relevant. Right. And there is one part that if you read Mallory and then go and listen to my interview with Josh, which there's an hour of of spoiler free talk, uh, spoiler free talk before we get into it. But if you listen to the spoiler part, there is one chapter that just creeped me out. And uh, Josh and I go very deep into this. There's one line of dialogue that is just absolutely gut-wrenching in Mallory. It takes place on a train um, and it's one character saying something to Mallory. And what amazed me is that for two books, Mallory's greatest fears got wrapped up into one line of dialogue that someone says to her that tears down every defense she has. And it's one of the most incredible moments hmm. of writing that I read all year. Really? That very one line of dialogue just knocked my socks off is probably the best individual gut punch moment that I read all year in hmm. book number three. Mallory by Josh Mallerman. Yeah. And I would say that that one line is one of the reasons why Mallory is so high on my list. This, this one, one, one line of a dialogue, one line of dialogue that wow. is absolutely when I read it, I dropped the book, my jaw kind of lowered. I looked around for a little bit. <laughs> and wanted to tip my hat to Josh in that moment. Those are some of the, those are the best moments of reading. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a big reason we read as much as we do just to find those little moments. Yeah. No moment this year that I read was more, I was more jealous of as a writer. Like, fuck yeah. And so in the interview, you get to hear me and Josh talk about that scene too, which is great. And, um, and look, if, if someone's out there thinking I'm never going to read Mallory, you can still listen to the interview. And if you're curious about right. that line, yeah. I think that would be stupid. I think you should go read the book and then find out and see if you catch it. Right. Uh, number two on my list was an ultimate book of the year. Yes. Was a dick like suggestion. And that is waist tied by Shen Queen Fon, Quinn Fon, I believe is how it's pronounced, but I could be wrong on that. He goes by Stanley Chan um with english writers um and translated by ken liu so it's the second book in the top five translated by ken liu so this is a chinese this is a chinese cyberpunk anime influenced super political crazy awesome brutal politically sharp science fiction novel fucking awesome i loved waste tide waste tide is incredible so waste tide is much more critical of china vagabonds <laughs> is and i don't want to get stanley chan in trouble <laughs> because um that's a dangerous thing for for authors in, yeah. in the country <clears throat> he's not so much questioning the government what he's questioning in the book is how china has become this technological trash heap by making all this like race to the bottom technology for the rest of the world and the idea is imagining like what will happen with all that 
wasted technology when it kind of like comes back ashore in, in, in the country. It has really great characters. It has American characters, it's Chinese characters. It has characters that become partially cybernetic. It is almost hard to explain what this book is about, but if you're looking for an example of a novel that show, showcases what Chinese science fiction can do, you really cannot go wrong with Waste Tide. Waste Tide is incredible. If you want a sampling of Chinese science fiction, then I would suggest Invisible Planets, the collection translated right. by Ken Liu, which has has two stories by Stanley Chan in it, um, including Year of the Rat, which is a really great story too, which has like weird nano robot rats. And it, it's, he's great. He's really cool. God, I would love to have him on dickheads. Um, I have reached out to him through Twitter and have not heard anything back. I'm trying. You never know. I'm trying. Yeah. But yeah, Waste Tide, uh, Stanley Chan, um, uh, definitely check that one out. The final. Before, before before we get there, do you have like any real honorable mentions you want to do before we, we uh, wrap it up with the, the big one? Well, The Loop by Jeremy Robert Johnson was, was super fun. The Parable of the Sower graphic novel was great. I did an interview with the two dudes who wrote that and did that. That was really good. I would say The Mirage by Matt Ruff, which I read for, which is an older book, which I read for, he's the author of Lovecraft Country, but he wrote a kind of man. Which he read this year, right? Yeah. I read Lovecraft Country this year too. I think The Mirage is better, um, even though I fucking hate the ending. Um, I do think it's a good book, but the ending is terrible. Dead to Her by Sarah Pimborough, if you like. um, That's a very, that's a very sly feminist thriller because it kind of looks like a gone girl type thriller hmm. but um it 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 has a very not a riot girl type feminist but like i don't know like a beverly hills hotel type feminist twist to it okay. um if you know what i mean like a a, a wearing fancy clothes feminist type yeah. thing and i think that's really good uh, coming from San Diego, I would say The Churchgoer by Patrick Coleman was good. It's a crime novel that um, Nick Pizzolatto of um, True Detective fame is adapting for FX. Okay. Uh, get on board with that before it becomes a show. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, those are some. Those are some. Oh, Outre by uh, D. Harlan Wilson. Just scraped the bottom of the list. Uh, came really close, too. That's really good, too. All right. But my number one. No shock, no shock to anyone who's followed me online because I've said it a hundred times. This would be my read of the year. This is another one that was on the NPR 100 list. So podcast guest here. And that's uh, the only good Indian by Stephen Graham Jones. I read two Stephen Graham Jones books this year. Night of the Mannequins was the last book I just finished, um, which is a novella. But the only good Indian is an incredible horror novel. I would say if it has any weakness, it's that it's broken up into three acts and the first act is definitely the best of the three. Mm. So that would be, to, to me, the only weakness the book has. Um, Stephen basically said that what he wanted to do was, he was thinking he wanted to write a Friday the 13th or a, a Jason novel, but 
he doesn't have the rights to the character so he had to make up his own killer in the woods this is a everybody knows i love reversals this parallels and reversals this book is all parallels and reversals it's a reversal of the trope of the angry native american spirit from the tainted lands because it's wendigos it's all about wendigos (laughs) no it's not about wendigos but it is about the story is about native american hunters who kill an elk without honoring its legacy or doing any of those things that and basically it's um and they're haunted for it and there's a sweat lodge scene that is incredible, which would be incredibly cinematic. And there's also a scene that I don't know will work for everyone um, that involves basketball. But those of us who are basketball nerds uh, will get into the basketball scene. And apparently, <laughs> and I was afraid it wouldn't work for people who don't like basketball, but I am told that it works for people who do not like basketball. But probably not. Is it just because it's a sports thing or? That, that people wouldn't like it or the well uh, i think that it there's like parts of it that mean more if you know basketball like if you know okay. street ball and 21 and playing games like that for example sure. everyone who plays street ball knows that you play to 21 or you play you know or 11 you play to 11, 11. Or 21 and most and so like there's a point where a character looks up or or hears that the, the other person playing the game says that they tell them that they have 18 points right and i kept thinking to myself oh the game i know the game's almost over right but i don't know that everyone who's reading it right right knows that it's getting tenser because that person has 18 points that's the kind of thing i'm talking about okay might not make sense might not work for everyone that being said especially in the first act the characters and the dialogue are incredible it's got a very pkd thing going on with a ceiling fan and like um uh steven is definitely influenced by pkd and even though this is a horror novel there's definitely pkd influence especially in the first act and it's a very it has a very experimental tone where the three different acts all take on a very different style and that's where i said that oh really yes wow and, and in that sense, like, I personally liked the writing of the first act better than the writing of the other two acts, okay. because there's, there's, yeah, that's, that's hard to, that's hard to pull off using different styles in the same novel. Right. And, um, and so, like I said, if there's any weakness there, it's that the first act is, is stronger than, than the rest. But to me, the could first that, act, could that be a matter of opinion? Yes. Or is it? Yeah. Okay. Because, um, in, in, for example, too, like one thing that Stephen and I talked about is that, so when you read something that comes from another culture, like sometimes like that is fun because you're looking into another culture that's very different from your own. And so, yeah. for, for example, the second act takes place entirely in a sweat lodge. So for somebody who's never really done a bunch of sweat lodges, felt different and it was something, but Stephen right. writing it, like he's done sweat lodges his whole life. So it was very familiar. And he felt like he was writing something very familiar. And, and so, so for me, I think the reason why the first act kind of worked better, or I liked it a little bit better is because 
the way the characters were written and everything that was going on felt more familiar to me. And I also just really mm. liked the characterization. And there's a, a reveal towards the end of the first act that is is pretty intense and you're, I did not see it coming. And um, it sends the book into interesting territory. It's probably better. I went into it cold, not knowing anything about the plot and I'm glad I did. If right. you're taking this recommendation from me, uh, the way I do things, if I hear something that tells me about a plot, that tells me why I want to write a, read a book is I wait a couple months so I forget why I wanted to read it. Because <laughs> a lot of times- You just, keep the, you just keep that knowledge that it is something you want to read. Something I want to read, not necessarily why. Um, right. And then come back to it. And and for example, uh, that worked with, with Survivor Song, uh, Paul Tremblay's, because early on, I knew I was going to read it because it's Paul Tremblay and I was just going to read it. So I didn't read much about the plot. And right. um, But at some point, somebody had told me that it was a pandemic book. And I was like, I'm not going to read it right away because I don't want to remember that it's a pandemic book. And so when I started it, the first like page or two, I, I didn't realize that it was a pandemic book. So, <laughs> all right, let, let's, let's wrap up the reads stuff. Um, is there well, any- one, one last question. Yeah. Uh, what are you reading now? I am reading Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse, which is a um, pre-Columbian American fantasy novel. Um, I read her Star Wars novel and I didn't want to be, a, I didn't want to say I've only read your Star Wars novel um, <laughs> to anyone. Um, right. And partially I wanted to read this because it has, uh, speaking of Stephen Graham Jones, it has a blurb from him. I'm reading that and then I, and I will be reading Ubik for uh, the Dickheads podcast soon. Um, Signals, the latest adversary cycle book for f paul wilson because having six books in one series and 15 books in another series that all end in the same book wasn't enough he had to add a book to the adversary cycle <laughs> <laughs> so the ending is still the same but he wrote a book in the so now there's seven adversary cycle books now book instead of book six, now it's book seven of Adversary Cycle is the same <laughs> as book 15 of Repairman Jack. And so he added something the to it. Plotting master. Yeah, so he added something to it. So I got to read it. So I just got signals in the mail. So I'll be reading that soon. Fucking excited about that. Awesome. And, but other than that, that's that's the reads for the year. Um, is there anyone on this list that you're like, holy shit, I absolutely have to read that? Is well, it yeah. I mean the, the the two that that absolutely catch me and, and since we've talked about them before is the only good Indians uh, or the only good Indian and uh, Survivor Song. Mm -hmm. Those are the main two that I just I need to read those. Yeah, yeah. I thought but I, my you know my reading list is a bizarre mix of all kinds of stuff and <laughs> it's hard to find time to add anything new since I have constantly have four books going. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. So we'll see folks on the movie episode, which will be a little bit shorter because um, <laughs> you never know, and, but, it, uh, but it should be, there wasn't a lot of movies this year. So. Right. I'm going to go quicker on movies. I don't, I don't talk as much about movies as I do books, but anyways, we'll see people. On oh, so we'll be flipping roles on that one. Okay. I'll be doing more of the talking. 
<laughs> All right. So thanks for joining us, folks. And uh, we'll uh, see you soon.